The title of this evening's talk is Practice Here and There, Practice Everywhere. (laughs) So, here we are coming to the end of a longish experiment, a period of practice mostly silent intensive practice and soon to be taking yourselves taking your practice out there wherever there is for you for a much longer period of intensive practice with the possibility of wherever you go wherever you are there's your practice I think that um, many of us come to the end of a retreat with some thoughts and feelings that uh, are not so dissimilar uh, with those that we came into retreat with. For many people, um, though there's a feeling of excitement and uh, readiness uh, to go into an extended period of intensive practice, just before it's time to enter in, there's also sometimes the feeling of um, that I'm not really quite finished yet out there, out here, since we're already out there at that point. Just a few more days, uh, maybe another week, so that I can uh, finish up everything and do everything that needs to be done, uh, and then I'll be ready to go in, into retreat. And it seems that some of us have maybe the same thoughts when it comes time to go out of retreat. Just a little more time, a few more days, maybe even a couple of weeks, a month to do what needs to be done. (laughs) And then I'll be finished. Then I'll be ready to come out and go out there. And sometimes on either end, the going in and the coming out there may be some degree of reluctance, maybe some fear of the unknown or fear of the seeming unknown, resistance or maybe essentially just simply fear of change, fear of ending one way and entering into another way. You might check in with yourself and see if there might be some similar thoughts and feelings, similar conditioned patterns within your own mind and heart coming up now uh, at the end of this retreat. Mental states that you may have experienced or similar mental states that you may have experienced as you were preparing to come here and or at the onset of the retreat. Our first night together, I mentioned um, uh, a little story about a number of years ago when I was living at the Insight Meditation Society as the resident teacher for staff. And I was talking with a friend uh, the evening before he was uh, to begin sitting his uh, fourth or fifth uh, three-month retreat. And I asked him how he was feeling. And I think if I'd asked 
the same question at the end of the retreat, his answer may have been similar. He said, oh, I'm feeling the obligatory fear. And of course, we're not at all obliged to feel anxiety, fear in either direction, entering in or going out of retreat. There's certainly the possibility that one might feel a clean, clear, open readiness and a happiness without any particular expectations or worries about moving on to the next thing, the next phase and form that life will take for us. At a retreat that I taught uh, some years ago, one person described coming out of retreat as feeling like she was descending, like a plane descending, landing, feeling the force of gravity coming back to earth, she said. There's a beautiful piece that was written by the American astronaut Russell Swikert regarding um, his experiences in outer space. And this is uh, what he said. You recall staring out there at the spectacle that went before your eyes because now you're no longer inside something with the window looking out at a picture. Now you're out there and there are no frames. There are no limits. There are no boundaries. You're really out there going 17,000 miles an hour ripping through space, a vacuum. And there's not a sound. There's a silence, the depth of which you've never experienced before. And that silence contrasts so markedly with the scenery you're seeing and with the speed with which you know you're moving. And you think about what you're experiencing and why. Do you deserve this this fantastic experience? Have you earned this in some way? Are you separated out to be touched by God, to have some special experience that others cannot have? And you know the answer to this is no. There's nothing you've done to deserve this, to earn this. It's not a special thing for you. You know very well at that moment, and it comes through to you so powerfully that you're the sensing element for humans. You look down and see the surface of that globe that you've lived on all this time, and you know all those people down there, and they are like you. They are you, and somehow you represent them. You're up here as the sensing element, that point out on the end, and that's a humbling feeling. It's a feeling that says you have a responsibility. It's not for yourself. The eye that doesn't see doesn't do justice to the body. That's why it's there. That's why you are out there. And somehow you recognize that you're a piece of this total life and that you're out there on that forefront and that you have to bring it back somehow. And that becomes a rather special responsibility. And it tells you something about your relationship with this thing we call life. So that's a change. That's something new. And when you come back, there's a difference in that world now. There's a difference in that relationship between you and that planet and you and all those other forms of life on that planet because you've had that kind of experience. It's a difference, and it's so precious.
And of course, it is a change. A change out of retreat life into life in the larger world. One change being the pace of life, at least outwardly. Life moves a lot faster outside of intensive retreat. And yet we're supported as we move into the larger world with a deeper understanding through our weeks of practice and how quickly and incessantly things change within our own body and mind. How quickly and incessantly things change all around us, even in the slow pace of life in retreat. This understanding, this wisdom, is a great support and a great protection as we make this change from retreat life to practice in the world. Reconnecting with a larger world in the day-to-dayness or in the moment-to-momentness, in the incessant and often fast-paced changes that happen in our daily life. And we've tasted the impersonality of change. We've tasted that we can't stop change. We can't hold on to anything. And we've tasted how painful it is to try. We've had a glimpse that all of this changing phenomena in our body and mind and heart isn't me. It's not anything that we can keep and call mine. It's not who I am. We've had a taste that what we experience in any given moment happens, comes together because of myriad causes and conditions. In truth, really an unfathomable unfathomable number of conditions coalescing in that moment. And then it changes quite quickly or just simply disappears. These tastes, this understanding, has a deep and beneficial effect on how we think about things and how we relate in the world. There's more clarity in relationship to our deepest goals and aspirations and what we choose to do or not to do. There's more clarity in relationship to the choices we make, more concentration and clarity in our relationships to others, more clarity in what's important and appropriate, what's wholesome and truly respectful and kind. These tastes, this understanding, is a great support and a great protection as we reconnect to a larger world. Here in retreat, life is pared down a life of much more simplicity than most of us have outside of retreat. So this is a great change from here to there. Life in retreat offers very little outside distraction. We sit, we walk, we eat, we sleep. Moved your body and you've moved your body in unique and authentic ways. You've practiced seeing through the eye doors and drawing and writing 
writing words and spoken just a little every few days and within this container of simplicity you've been supported to mindfully pay attention to what occurs in the body, heart and mind and been invited to come and see and to know Is the mind, the heart, connecting to what is? Or is it disconnected, separated? We come to see and know what brings suffering and what brings ease, a sense of well-being. We learn to care about and respect all of these cycles within our mind and body. This seeing and knowing is also a great support and a great protection as we reconnect with the larger world. (coughs) We're all really so similar, no matter who we are, where we live, our culture, our age, our color. Really, we're just variations on themes. We're all totally interconnected, totally interdependent on this small planet that we all share. Sila, living ethically, respectfully, living harmlessly, wends its way into being the ground of our life, quite naturally, as our understanding of what brings suffering and what brings ease deepens and blossoms in our heart. As we come to see and know this through our intensive practice, it affects how we communicate, how we use language, and it affects our actions. Seeing into our own mind affects and informs the motivation behind the words and the actions that we take out in the world. And some words from the Buddha. The thought manifests as the word. The word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into habit. And habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care. And let it spring from love born out of concern for all beings. The possibility of engaging in the refuges and precepts as part of our daily practice, maybe beginning our day, chanting them to ourselves. This can be a powerful aspect of encouraging the purification of our thoughts, our words, and our actions. And again, for me, as... I'm sure for many of you, over my years of practice in the simplicity of retreat setting, I've been inspired and motivated to simplify my own life, to live my daily life in a way that serves, that supports the process of awakening. And it's been interesting over the years to see this happening over time. 
sometimes letting go of a particular habit or particular habits of or of distraction that have been done with a very been done with a very conscious intention and as our practice deepens there's more and more often a letting go a simplification that unfolds quite naturally we more and more easily and naturally relinquish the habits the distractions in our life that don't serve this awakening process that we've committed ourselves to and it's very often around quite ordinary very mundane aspects of our life so a very ordinary mundane example there was a time uh, when i would get into my car and i would automatically turn on the radio and at some point i began to notice it as a distraction and so i decided not to turn it on all of the time so i'd begin driving somewhere and i my hand would automatically move towards turning on the radio knob the force of habit is very very strong so mindfully i bring my hand back down and at some point i began noticing uh, the thought to turn on the radio and then a choice was available to or not to so looking at another change in this simple and quiet space of retreat there may have been some big days some big events for you sometime during these last couple of weeks and especially big day uh, for us in retreat might be something as mundane as laundry day <laughs> for me uh, there were times when i was in retreat when laundry day was such a huge addition to my day that i would plan it before i went to bed the night before and then the first thing that i thought about when i woke up in the morning uh would be either putting out or picking up my laundry and i suspect that um since some of you are laughing you know what i'm talking about <laughs> and how about the um big events of lunch <laughs> or the big event of a practice interview or in this retreat the big event of the first day of the movement practice or the first day of the singing and drawing practice or the big event of the first day of writing practice lots of big events in this retreat <laughs> this is a poem uh, by a japanese poet uh, nanao sakake uh, he was a wandering uh, japanese buddhist poet who uh, died about 2 months ago This poem is called A Big Day Getting water at the spring carrying firewood chattering with a neighbor the sun goes down a big day many years ago and now used to spend uh, a fair amount of time up at the Lama Foundation 
some of you know it well, just about uh, 30 minutes north of here. He'd show up at Lama with his um, small knapsack and a sleeping bag and stay for a few days. Uh, And they were always very happy to put him up when he would show up. And then he'd head out into the mountains with nothing more than he'd arrived with. Often he'd be gone for a few weeks and then he'd be back again, back at Lama again. A very dear friend of mine was um, the coordinator up at Lama during those years of Nanao's visits. And um, she told me a story of uh, one of these times when Nanao came in uh, for a day from about two weeks out in the mountains. And he asked her and another friend uh, if they would like to come out to his camp for dinner in a few days. And my friend was very delighted by the invitation. Dinner with Nanao out at his camp was something special, something that had never uh, before been offered. So on the appointed day and the appointed time, my friend and this and her friend, the other invitee, uh, found their way out to Nanao's uh, camping spot, following his directions very carefully. And when they got there, Nanao was there, but there was no food ready and no food in view. He told them not to bring anything with them, uh, that it wouldn't be necessary, and that there would be plenty of food. My friend said that uh, they thought that maybe they'd made a mistake, that um, maybe this was the wrong day. But Nanao was very delighted to see them, welcomed them warmly and heartily, and said, well, now let's go out and find dinner. And my friend said that they walked uh, and picked and dug various wild foods and then came back and built a fire and cooked what needed to be cooked and had an incredibly delicious dinner with Nanao. She said that she finally understood how Nanao could go out into the mountains for days or weeks at a time with almost nothing and come back strong healthy and very happy. Once someone in an interview spoke about the simplicity of life on retreat as having a good taste. We taste it, this good taste, and we take it with us. It wends its way into our life in many small and sometimes big ways. Life outside of retreat, of course, we know can be quite complex at times. Our family life, our jobs. There are ways that we can let go of some of the complexity. And we often do this little by little as our practice deepens in and out of retreat. We make choices in relationship to the way we do our work to the way that we spend time with family, friends, partners. We make choices in how we spend our free time. We truly have the possibility of simplifying, at least to some degree, every aspect of our life. We truly have the possibility of expanding and deepening that, this good taste, 
that we take with us from the simplicity of retreat life. And of course there are complex responsibilities and commitments that we must continue with. The taste of simplicity has another very beneficial effect on our life outside of retreat. It affects and inspires the way that we expend our energy, what we put our energy towards, how we use our energy, even in the most complex activities and relationships. From our experience in retreat practice, we learn, we see, we come to know more clearly when we're off balance in the ways that we engage and use our energy. And we take this knowing into our life outside of retreat. As we intuitively, naturally find ourselves letting go of old habits, old habituated, unskillful ways of being and doing, we find ourselves connecting with more skillful, more wholesome ways of being and doing. And we begin to feel more balance within ourself and within our life as a whole. And so we find that, in fact, we have more energy and more time available for our life to more directly and more clearly be our practice. So simplicity inwardly and outwardly in times of retreat. As we reconnect to a larger world, simplicity being a great support and a great protection here and out there. A great support and a great protection everywhere along this step-by-step journey. Considering our whole life as our practice, how can we develop and deepen our practice in the midst of our everyday lives? Really a most essential and important question. And of course the essential ground of this is that we develop, that we integrate a mindful awareness into all the dimensions of our being. Making our body, our speech, our actions, our thoughts, our feelings, our relationships, our work, our play, our creative endeavors, part of our practice. From this perspective, it's really not so different from our practice in a retreat setting. All of the conditions, all of the relationships in our lives are wonderful mirrors for our practice. The joys and irritations, the annoyances and the delights, the frustrations and the satisfactions, the likes and the dislikes. All that we experience in life in retreat and life outside of retreat. The mirrors for our practice. A woman who sat a retreat that I taught in Israel a number of years ago and 
who had long before I met her lived in a spiritual community in France that was guided by the philosopher and spiritual teacher Gurdjieff told me a story that's really a wonderful mirror of a particular and difficult life situation being the perfect practice. And this is a story that's actually been written, but I heard it from the horse's mouth, so to say. (laughs) She said that in this community in France, there was an old man who was a very irascible fellow. He was very messy and quite argumentative. He wouldn't cooperate and he wouldn't help with things. And basically he didn't get along with anybody. And nobody got along with him. And she said that no one in the community um, liked him. And he himself didn't seem to like very many of the people that lived there either. She said that he tried to stay there for quite a long time. But it was very difficult for him as well as for other people. So difficult that finally he left. He couldn't bear it anymore. So he left and he went to Paris. And Gurji followed him to Paris and tried to convince this man to return to the community. But the man said he couldn't do it. It was just too hard for him to be there. Gurji finally offered him a monthly stipend to come back, which the man couldn't refuse because he was a very poor person. So he returned. And when the man returned, everyone in the community was aghast. (laughs) And they were even more aghast when they found out that he was being paid to be there. (laughs) Because they themselves actually had to pay to live in this community. So Gurdjieff called a meeting And he listened to everyone's complaints, and then he laughed. (laughs) And he said, this man is yeast for your bread. Without him, you would never learn about anger, irritability, patience, and compassion. That's why you pay me, and I pay him. The conditions in our lives, the people in our lives, are all part of our practice. They're yeast for our bread, yeast for our liberation, yeast for our awakening. There's one teaching amongst the 84,000 teachings that the Buddha offered. That's what we're told he offered. where the Buddha uses the metaphor of a mother uh, who has four sons. Uh, He uses this metaphor for the development and the flowering of the four divine abodes, the four divine abodes being metta, loving-kindness, karuna, compassion, mudita, appreciative or empathetic joy, and upeka, equanimity. Each of the sons, because of his particular age and personality and particular karmic manifestations calls forth from the mother one of the divine abidings. Now I only have three sons but uh, they've managed (laughs) to be some of my strongest teachers in many, many ways over the years and still even though they're grown up. 
Our closest people can be some of our best teachers. Just simply through them being who they are. What they need and what they give to us. What they show us. So an example. My two oldest sons, who are now 44 years old, are identical twins. And they continue to show me, to teach me, a a relationship that's very rare. They're each other's best friends. And although, of course, when they were little boys, they would fight with each other, as children do. But over all of these years, they've never talked about each other Um, or to each other in negative, judgmental ways. They never, really never, put each other down, no matter what one or the other is feeling, no matter what one or the other has done, no matter what has happened in one or the other's life. And they're not each other's keeper. They've never been disrespectful or codependent with each other. And I think this is really quite a rare relationship. And sometimes I'm in awe of it. And I learn from it. Every aspect of life is potentially a teaching. Every aspect of life has the potential to reveal the truth to us. And some words from the Buddha again. As a bee seeks nectar from all kinds of flowers, seek teachings everywhere. Like a deer that finds a quiet place to graze, seek seclusion to digest all that you have gathered. And this is a poem translated from the Turkish of Edip Kansever. It's called Table. A man filled with gladness of living put his keys on the table, put flowers in a copper bowl there, put his eggs and milk on the table. He put there the light that came in through the window, sound of a bicycle, sound of a spinning wheel, the softness of bread and weather he put there. On the table, the man put things that happened in his mind, what he wanted to do in life. He put that there. Those he loved, those he didn't love, the man put them on the table too. Three times three makes nine. The man put nine on the table. He was next to the window, next to the sky. He reached out and placed on the table endlessness. So many days he had wanted to drink a beer. He put on the table the pouring of that beer. He placed there his sleep and his wakefulness, his hunger and his fullness he placed there. Now that's what I call a table. It didn't complain at all about the load. It wobbled once or twice, then stood firm. The man kept piling things on. The 
the key to the door, the linchpin for the wheel of the cart that turn by turn moves along this noble sacred path is the first and foremost of course is first and foremost of course mindfulness along with an investigative and focused concentrated attention and it's true there's some change in the depth and the sustaining quality of the focusing power of our mind the concentration aspect of the mind a change from how it is in a retreat such as this as we reconnect with the larger world and it's true there's some change in the depth and the sustaining quality of mindfulness from how it is in a long retreat as this such as this as we reconnect with the larger world and although the same degree of concentration and mindfulness isn't totally sustained outside of the retreat setting the concentration and mindfulness that we experience in a retreat such as this is a great support and a great protection as we reconnect to a larger world there's a change but we don't lose it mindfulness and concentration and investigation are always available to us many years ago at the end of a two month retreat with one of my burmese teachers saida upandita and two other burmese monks i had a brief conversation with one of the monks at the end of the retreat and i asked him if there was any uh, advice that he might give me around taking practice into the whole of my life and his response was you need to eat and to stay you need to eat to stay alive and healthy you need to sleep to stay alive and healthy you need to meditate to stay alive and healthy <laughs> good advice in terms of integrating mindfulness more and more into your daily life there are some particular ways that i and others have found that uh, can be quite helpful one teacher i know suggests that at the end of each hour of the day take one or two minutes to just stop to just stop be still and be mindful so however long your waking day is that could be 15 to 30 minutes of a very directly focused mindful time with each of these minutes each of these minutes having an effect on the moments that follow another way to carry our practice into our daily daily lives is to remember to touch into physical sensations through contact mindfulness and concentration are immediately connected with and strengthened every time we do this i think the only hard thing about doing these brief meditation sessions we could call them is to remember to do them I know that uh, some people um 
there are some people who put uh, little notes to themselves around their house or their home or uh, in their workplace to remind them to check in. And there was a fellow on staff at IMS um, uh, some years ago who worked in the front office and uh, who had a, a little small stand-up note on his desk that said buttocks, <laughs> which was to remind him to notice the touch points of his bottom on the chair every now and then. <laughs> Walking meditation can be a very important, powerful aspect of our practice in the world. An important aspect of continuing to connect with and strengthen concentration and mindfulness. Most of us walk at least a few miles just going from place to place through a day and more miles through a week. And we can make some of this a time of walking practice. When I lived at IMS as the resident teacher uh, for staff there, my uh, workroom and my living space were upstairs in the main building. And because I did quite a few interviews and had uh, quite a lot of meetings, I didn't have time during the day to do walking meditation. So I decided that every time I went up and down the stairs would be my walking practice. And I did this most of the time. At one point, uh, a staff member came in for an interview and he was obviously quite agitated. And with difficulty, he told me um, that he was very upset because I was ignoring him. He said he felt abandoned by me. He said that every, whenever he passed me on the stairs, I wouldn't even look at him. <laughs> and he wondered if I was angry with him. So I told him uh, going up and down the stairs was my walking meditation time. And that I certainly hadn't abandoned him, nor was I angry with him. It's just that I was practicing as deeply as I could, going up and down the stairs. And of course, this completely changed his attitude. He was very happy for me. (laughs) And told me what a great idea it was. (laughs) An interesting uh, view on perception, as a matter of fact. I saw him just recently. He's back uh, working at IMS, and we discussed this, and he remembered it. (laughs) People may not always understand uh, what you're up to when you integrate or practice into your life in small ways. Do it anyways. (laughs) Use your life wisely. And it's really also very helpful to connect with others who practice. We certainly can see and feel the benefits of this when we're in a retreat setting. If you're not connected at least sometimes with a group, even just a group of two or three, to sit with for once, once in a while, check in and see if, there's, if there is a sitting group in your area. And if there isn't, start one which might mean just asking one or two people you know to, who meditate to join you once a week or once every other week and sit to sit together. 
You can sit together and maybe listen to a tape, read something out loud, taking turns each week as to who chooses the reading, have some Dhamma discussion, or you might even pick a theme for a week or a couple of weeks to focus on. The Buddha, in a conversation with Ananda, his, one of his chief disciples, spoke about the importance of the connection with spiritual friends. The venerable Ananda said to the Buddha, Half this holy life, O Lord, is good and noble friends. Companionship with the good, association with the good. And the Buddha responded to Ananda saying, Do not say that, Ananda. It's the whole of this holy life, this friendship, companionship, and association with the good. Use your life wisely. Use your energy wisely. Let every moment, as much as possible, be a conscious intent to practice. Meditation is one of the great arts of life, perhaps the greatest. It can take place anytime, anywhere, when we have the intention to live awake. If we're patient and determined in our practice, it's inevitable that joy increases, peace increases, that wisdom increases, It's inevitable that our ability to live a beneficial and compassionate life increases. And here's another poem from Nanao. If you have time to chatter, read books. If you have time to read, walk into the mountain, desert, and ocean. If you have time to walk, sing songs and dance. If you have time to dance, sit quietly, you happy, lucky idiot. (laughs) (laughs) And I would add, in the time that you have, take time to let the body move. Take time for seeing, for drawing. Take time for writing. And take time to sit quietly, you happy, lucky idiots. (laughs) (laughs) And this is a poem, another poem, called An Inquiry into Art by Red Hawk. The idea is to catch the moment and dance to look at the world from both sides like the farmer in Iowa who glances up from his plow startled believing he has just caught a scent of the ocean looking up he sees instead rain clouds and shakes his head smiling at his first nod a gull bends brightly out on a band of wind dancing in a haze of rain he looks to heaven and his face fills with rain. His hair floats on air. His shirt billows and gasps. He rises 
and flies west. In closing this evening's talk, one more poem from Nanao. I feel like I'm doing a tribute to Nanawa this evening. This is called A Love Letter. Within a circle of one meter, you sit, pray, and sing. Within a shelter ten meters large, you sleep well. Rain sounds a lullaby. Within a field a hundred meters large, raise rice and goats. Within a valley a thousand meters large, Gather firewood, water, wild vegetables, and amanitas. Within a, forest, within a forest ten kilometers large, play with raccoons, hawks, poison snakes, and butterflies. Mountainous country, Shinano, a hundred kilometers large, where someone lives leisurely, they say. Within a circle ten thousand kilometers large, go see the southern coral reef in summer or winter drifting, drifting ices on the Sea of Oxtek. Within a circle 10,000 kilometers large, walking somewhere on the earth. Within a circle 100,000 kilometers large, swimming in the sea of shooting stars. Within a circle a million kilometers large, upon the spaced-out yellow mustard blossoms, the moon in the east, the sun in the west. Within a circle ten billion kilometers large, pop far out of the solar system mandala. Within a circle ten thousand light-years large, the galaxy full-blooming in spring. Within a circle one billion light-years large, Andromeda is melting away, into snowing cherry blossoms. Now within a circle 10 billion light years large, all thoughts of time, space, are burnt away. There again you sit, pray, and sing. You sit, pray, and sing. And let's sit quietly for a few moments. Thank you.